And last week we looked at um, what we called signs of life. Signs that there is spiritual life within your soul. True religion is the life of God in the soul of man. New creation. You think differently. You act differently. You feel differently. You don't always feel buzzy and happy and giddy, but you feel different. You have a different relationship to sin. We noted four particular signs of life. There are others. A connection with believers. A conviction of sin. You can't continue in sin. And then concern for the truth. But those are signs the Apostle John speaks of in his letter. First John. A concern for the truth. You want to know the truth? You hear the truth. You believe the truth. You hear the truth and you know it's truth. Which is, if you just stop and think about that, to hear the truth and know it's the truth, that is an amazing miracle. Why, why don't you listen to Islam? Why don't you listen to, I was driving off of, uh, I don't know what that is, Vivian and, what is that, Shoto. And there was, I think it was a Vietnamese Buddhist temple there. Or center, Buddhist center of some sort. Why, why don't I hear that and go, that is not, why is it when I hear the truth, I go, that's right. I, that's, that, I believe that. That is true. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of truth in us that recognizes truth. Jesus said, I love this in John chapter 10, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Because of the Spirit of God within us, there is an internal recognition of truth. You may not know all truth, but when you hear truth, you say, that's right. It's a concern for the truth. Peter says, as newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, there's a desire for the word of God. You want the word of God. That's signs of life. That's examining ourselves. That's looking at the the front of the dollar bill. This evening, I want to turn the dollar bill around. I want us to look at the back. I want us to look at the the basis of this assurance that we can have. And before we actually turn the coin around, I want to recognize a problem about looking at the front, about examining ourselves. There is a problem when... We examine ourselves and it becomes a a basis for assurance because it is a very subjective examination and it's going to be very discouraging in all frankness. You're going to look at yourself and you're not probably going to be very happy or very confident. If we are the sole basis of our assurance, meaning, okay, Tim, put you on the witness stand. And I run through all these litany of tests. And if my if the sole basis of my salvation is on how I fare on the witness stand, I'm in trouble. And most of us would be in trouble. If you examine yourself enough. If you analyze the good things that you do. If you inspect closely even the biblical things that you do, you know. Okay, I'm going to love my wife because I'm a Christian. I love my wife. You look at that really closely. You, how you give. How you love the brethren. 
You do you look at anything you do close enough and you're going to find it's tainted with sin. It's because we're still sinners. You'll find motives that are possibly impure or inadequate. Our acts and our works will always fall short. We could have done it better. We should have done it more. That, that will, if you put yourself on the witness stand, that's what's going to happen. And there are some people who are so analytical, so melancholy. Those kind of people have a, probably more often than not have a real struggle with assurance than other people. I mean, there's people that they just analyze everything to death. I analyze some things, but not everything. There's some things, you know, okay, you just believe in move. Not Some people just analyze, analyze, analyze. And if you analyze your life like that, analyze it to death, you will not have much assurance at all. You won't. You look at your faith. I've met people like this. You know, I, I told someone even before the service, I never remember a time not believing in Jesus. I've trusted Jesus. But there are some people that look at their faith and they go, but do I trust him enough? Is my belief enough or my repentance? Have I really repented enough? Have I repented long enough of my sin? Do I love the brethren? They, they examine that so closely. Well, there's, I have such a hard time with so-and-so. Oh, I, I don't love the brethren. They don't witness enough. They don't read enough. They don't pray enough. They don't give enough. The, Pur- the Puritans, they are our theological forefathers. They are the forebears of the Reformed faith that we hold very dearly. One of the marks of the Puritans was a constant examination and inspection upon the genuineness of religious experiences. Genuineness of faith, genuineness of profession. They preach, they were constantly evaluating them. And, and literally, you talk about analytical, read Jonathan Edwards' sermon. I mean, just step by step, inch by inch, systematic way of dealing with something. And they would look at the Christian experience and, and believer, the professing believers in the church, and they would preach with the result that there would be intense introspection upon a person's profession of faith. But one of the dangers of that is that if that becomes your only focus... If you are constantly examining yourself and constantly looking in and analyzing every action and every deed, it will lead to despair. It will lead to spiritual suicide. Say what, after the Puritans will get through with you, there wouldn't be anybody in this room that would wonder, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I mean, they were that relentless and that systematic. This atmosphere, this environment of constant introspection can be very devastating spiritually. Very few will be able to look at themselves, 
put themselves on trial and examine the face and have a smug assurance. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Very few people will be able to do that. As a matter of fact, to even do that, to examine yourself and go, yeah, sure. Look at that. I'm definitely a Christian. Borders on being dangerous. We will see things that may be hopeful signs, but there will be enough doubt. There will be enough concern that we'd never be able to have full hope or full assurance if we had to examine our, our actions and our deeds all the time. To have some type of smug assurance based upon our self-examination is dangerous. In Matthew chapter 7, remember those that stand before Jesus? Hey, we prophesy in your name. We've cast out demons. We've done many mighty works for you. We, we're, Lord, we're in good shape. Apart from me, I don't even know you. I actually believe that... Um, Most genuine Christians, most Christians who are born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God, God will be prone to what I would say excessive introspection. We'll be prone to that. And I think there are a number of factors that cause a genuine believer to be very skeptical of himself on the examination or on the, the witness stand. The Spirit of God indwelling you, the Holy Spirit of God, the light of the presence of God that illumines all of the nooks and crannies and cracks and defects. And you can't help but wonder about the authenticity of your faith. So I, I will say, and that's kind of, it's not really a point, but I would say, that if you are a genuine Christian, you will probably struggle. You will probably be prone to excessive self-criticism of your uh, spiritual life. Charles Hodges, in his systematic theology, he, he understood the dangers of this excessive, intense introspection. He's a Reformed theologian. But he noted one of the dangers that comes about by embracing not necessarily Puritan theology, but Puritan methodology. Listen to what Hodges says. Many sincere believers are too introspective. They look too exclusively within so that their hope is graduated by the degree of evidence of regeneration which they find in their own experience. This, he says, except in rare cases, can never lead to the assurance of hope. We may examine our hearts with all the microscopic care prescribed by Jonathan Edwards in his uh, work, Religious Affections, and never be satisfied. Until we, have elimin- until we have eliminated every ground of misgiving and doubt. The grounds of assurance, Hodge said, are not so much within as without us. He uses within and without. I have said, I've talked about currency, the front and the back. 
The grounds of assurance are not so much on the face of the currency as on the back. He said, except in rare cases, this kind of examination can never lead to the assurance of hope. I would like to meet the rare cases of people who can examine themselves and come away with a full assurance of hope. Oh, yes, I am a believer. Piper said something very similar. He says, the more we focus on the subjective inner works of our own soul, that's the front of the currency, the more we focus on the subjective inner workings of our own soul and the relative purity or impurity of our own attitudes and behaviors, the more uncertain we become of our own assessment of our authenticity. Paradoxically, the path to assurance is to shift our focus off of ourselves and on to God, off of the subjective and on to the objective. Shift the focus from looking at ourselves to looking to the back, looking to the basis, which is God. And that's what I want to do this evening. We're going to turn the coin, the currency over, and we're going to look at the only firm foundation of our assurance, which is God, which is his work in Christ and in his word and his promises. When you examine yourself, it should always lead you to turning the coin over. And focusing upon the back, upon the basis of your salvation. So what I'm saying here is self-examination is extremely important. We should not have a smug disregard or say, oh, yeah, well, all Christians are feel this way. So what? Every time we examine ourselves, we will find ourselves falling short. And as we fall short, we must turn the coin over and look at the basis of our salvation, which is God, which is what he has done for us, what his word has said. Genuine believers will always find in their examination of themselves spiritually, they will always find reasons to run to Christ. Always. As a matter of fact, if you examine yourself and you don't find many reasons to run to Christ, you may not be seeing yourself the way you should. Robert Murray McShane is one of my favorite Scottish preachers. I wish I could have heard him preach and hear that brogue, but I can only read his sermons now. When I was in Scotland, I took a two hour train trip. No, it was longer than that. It was like six hours. I went to Dundee, traveled through Scotland all alone, all at night, got into this little town in Scotland, Dundee, made my way up. Everything was closed to this little bed and breakfast, finally found my way, spent the night there just so in the morning I could find the church that Robert McShane preached in. I found it. And there it was. But Robert McShane said something that I just love. He said, for every one look to our own sin, we need ten looks to the cross. And, and that's what this is about tonight. I'm not saying don't look to the front. We, Paul, Paul commands us to examine ourselves. But every time you look to yourself, you better turn that coin over and you better look to the cross of Jesus Christ. You better look to God and the character of God. This doesn't minimize the need for self-examination. Nor does it excuse callous disregard. But it is a self-examination that will keep us standing in the gospel. 
The only firm foundation for assurance is, and here's the main point of this whole message, the only firm foundation for assurance is the character of God in the provision and promises of the gospel. That is the only sure basis of our assurance. The character of God in the provision and promises of the gospel. Paul said to the Corinthians, we stand in the gospel. And when we see the need and when we're called to the witness stand, when we examine ourselves, we will find every reason why we need to stand in the gospel and not not get out of the gospel. You don't forget the gospel. You just stay planted in the gospel. And it's the self-examination that keeps us planted in the gospel. A couple of verses I want you to look at. Second Timothy one. Second Timothy one. Verse 12. I'm going to read from the ESV, but I am a little disappointed with the ESV in this verse. 2 Timothy 1.12. Pick up with the main thought. But I am not ashamed, Paul said, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me? The Greek is a bit ambiguous here. It could be what has been entrusted to Paul or what Paul has entrusted to God. The ESV has taken it of what God has entrusted to Paul. That he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me. Which is the gospel, the revealed body of truth. But that's not, in my estimation, the context. I believe the context, what Paul is speaking of, is for I know whom I have believed. I know God. I know his character. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. My faith. My confidence. And he will guard that. He will keep it. And I, I look at that because, first of all, he's talking to Timothy. And Timothy, obviously, is having some struggles in verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Maybe Timothy was young. Maybe he wasn't witnessing the way he should. Maybe he was embarrassed to witness in the public sec- sector. Maybe he was embarrassed that Paul was in prison. Maybe he was afraid that if he were to be public in his testimony of Jesus Christ, he would suffer persecution. So Paul says to him, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he says in verse nine, this is who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. All of this tends to point to looking to God as the sufficiency for who we are. He's ashamed. He's struggling. You're not in this calling because of all your good works. You're in this calling because of his grace. And by you entrusting yourself in him, he is faithful. He will keep that entrustment till the very end. I know whom I have believed, 
And I am convinced he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him, his own soul. The second verse I wanted you to see is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. We will see again that the foundation of assurance is the character of God and the provisions and promises that are in the gospel. Hebrews 6, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The word earnestness there is that word diligence. Give all due diligence, make haste, give yourself no rest to have the full assurance of hope. And how are you going to have full assurance of the hope? Verse 13, he speaks of this character of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is for people who flee to Christ for refuge. This isn't strong people. This isn't people that have it all together. These are people who examine themselves, fall short, and they come to Christ, and they have full assurance of hope because of the character of God. Because of his promises. That's where our assurance lies in what God has promised in his word. What he has provided for us in the gospel. Our assurance is is based upon the promises that God has made to us in his word. That's where our assurance. The way this plays out, when I struggle with assurance and I come to Jesus, I say, Lord, your word says all that the Father has given me shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I come to you. Your promise is you'll never cast me out. You've made that promise. Your word says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Lord, I come to you and I do believe. I'll help my unbelief, but I believe. And your word says that the person that believes in Jesus Christ is saved. That's a promise of your word. It's where we take the word and we preach it to ourselves. We take the word and we declare it to the Lord. We hold him to his word. First John one nine, you sin, you say, oh, we're going to talk about things that cause us to doubt our assurance. But one of them is sin. You take your sin and you say, if we confess our sins, your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
we take God at his word. I'll tell you just a little story here about a, a young boy, a young boy that I know very well because he was me. So I can tell you authoritatively about this young guy. I came to Christ at a very young age, and as I reflect on my own life, even to this day, I marvel at God's gracious hand in my life and what he was doing and the measure of grace and illumination that he he brought in my life, his keeping hand over the years. I look back and I remember myself as a very young boy, terrified of dying and going to hell, lying in bed at night, often crying because I didn't want to go to sleep. I was afraid I wouldn't wake up, terrified of the robbers outside that break in and kill me because I knew I was going to go to hell. And after I don't know how long that went on, I went to my mother where she led me to Christ. But that's not where my struggles ended. I do know that the Lord took away a fear of death that day. I didn't fear dying and going to hell. But I can distinctively remember as a young man several years later, I don't remember exactly how old, eight, nine years old, driving on 4th Street in Hutchinson, Kansas, had just passed somewhere near my grandpa and grandma. They had a log cabin in Hutchinson, Kansas. Go figure. I don't, still don't know why they built a log cabin. But we're driving by the log cabin in Hutchinson, Kansas, sitting in the back seat of mom and dad's car, thinking to myself, there's no way I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian. I don't know if it was lying. I don't know what great sin I had done or been involved in, but I said, there's no way I'm a Christian. And I remember asking myself as a young child, then how do I become a Christian? How do I become a Christian? And this is one of the moments I think back and I see God's gracious hand in my life at work. From all that had been taught me in Sunday school, all that had been taught to me by my parents, I remember coming to the conclusion the only way that a person can be a Christian is by trusting Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And in the back seat of that car, I said, I believe, Lord. I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What do you do when you doubt your salvation? What do you do when you look yourself on the witness stand and you don't like what you see? You say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. What do you do? You run to Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, I I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, but Lord, I believe that you died on the cross and I'm not going to be saved because of things that I do because I can't do enough. I can't do them right enough or good enough. But you have done it all for me in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe. I can't tell you the number of times in my life from childhood to this present day where I have had to almost daily, whether it be some confusion in my life, sin, disappointment, failure as a father, failure as a husband, where I in just, I don't know how to describe it, but brokenness say, I don't know about anything else, but I believe That Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. I believe that. I believe that He was sent by you, Father, into this sin-filled world. That He lived, He was born of a virgin. That He lived a sinless life. And I believe that He died on the cross for my sin. I believe that He was buried. And I believe that He was raised from the dead. And I believe He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. I believe that. I can't tell you the number of times I do that and have done that. 
and will continue to do that. When it all comes down to it, the basis of my assurance is on what Jesus Christ has done for me and the promises that God has made to the one who believes in him, to the one who looks to Jesus Christ. That is the basis of my assurance. I stand here today and I know that I'm saved. And it's not because I've passed all the tests on the witness stand. I've seen changes. I've seen transformation, but I see a whole lot of sin as well. I see a whole lot of failures. I see a whole lot of insignificant things that I do. And it forces me to look at the back of the coin. It forces me to look at the basis of my assurance. It's not Tim Youngke. It's not what I've done. It's what Jesus Christ has done for me. And that is the essence of the Christian life. That's what it means to stand in the gospel. That's what it means when the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter that rest. We have to do that. We have to enter that rest. It's when we put ourselves on the examination, the witness stand for examination, when we see ourselves not as we want to, when we do that which we don't want to, where we have to strive to enter into gospel rest. Strive to find peace in what Christ has done for us. I'm going to close here, but it was an amazing realization for me. The more and more I studied the letters of the New Testament, it was an amazing realization to me when I came to understand that so many of the New Testament books were written to believers who were struggling with assurance. That was just amazing to me. That had to be the case. It's it's certainly the case with with Hebrews. I mean, these Hebrew believers who are professing believers, this book that gives us the strongest statement on the sufficiency and atonement of Jesus Christ is written to a group of people who had to be struggling with their assurance, had to be struggling with their sinfulness, so much so that they were thinking, It's too good to be true, just Jesus died on the cross. We better go offer sacrifices just in case. The author of Hebrews says, don't you dare. Do not rely on any other sacrifice or work. Christ has paid it once for all. You read Ephesians, Colossians. I believe Paul is addressing churches that are struggling with their assurance. And Paul always starts his letters preaching Jesus Christ, what he has done for us and who we are in him. Paul's letters aren't about do this, do that. That was that was another amazing realization. You look at the epistles and it's not all about you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. It's about who you are in Jesus Christ. And once you come to that realization and that confidence of who you are in Jesus Christ from that, there are ethical outflows, but never before. So you have in Ephesians, the first chapter devoted to all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Colossians chapter two. I'll close with this verse. Colossians two. This really, I think, summarizes the attitude of the Apostle Paul and the problem in so many churches. Colossians two. I want you to know, verse one, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach 
all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want you, I I am struggling and I'm laboring that you will have the full assurance of the riches of God's mystery, which is Christ. Because once you know who you are in Christ, And how complete you are in Christ. Then you won't be taken captive, according to verse 8, by philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. Verse 9 says, for in him, Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled. I like how the New American Standard says, been made complete in him. It's in Christ we're made complete. It is our position in Christ. So as you examine yourself spiritually, which we are commanded to do, as you look at the signs of life, when you are convicted with sin, when you fail as a believer, when you fail as a spouse, you run to Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our assurance. His finished work. The only firm foundation of our assurance is the character of God that is made manifest in the provisions and the promises of the gospel, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this isn't necessarily applicable when we all come together because we all come together, but this truth is something we have to take home when we're lying on our bed and And the day's events are flooding our mind when we're alone with ourselves in the car and we think we want to turn on the radio just so we don't think about ourselves, that we must strive to enter this rest. This is something we daily do. And when we doubt our salvation, when we have reason to doubt our salvation, what do we do? Despair? No, we run to Jesus Christ. How can a person be a Christian then? He's a Christian by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take God at his word. Lord, your word says this. I believe it. Help my unbelief. Father, bless your word in Jesus name. Amen.